I love singing those songs. It just I was thinking as I was sitting in the chair in the pew there, how awesome heaven is going to be someday. When we when we sing like that, and I was thinking, we why do we sing so loud? I mean, you go into churches, sometimes it's so dead, so anemic. Everybody's just kind of you know, still singing about Jesus. And then you go into other churches, and it's vibrant. And I'm I've come to the conclusion that. We don't sing loudly because we've been told that's a good thing to do. We sing loudly because we believe it and we love it, and that's good stuff. So I pray that God would continue that spirit uh, in our body. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord, and I ask that you would pray with me uh, for tonight's message. Let's pray. Father, we, we humble ourselves before you. We are so thankful for the privilege now of, of sitting before your eternal, everlasting, living, abiding word. Um, you've given it to us, and we have the opportunity to open it and to read from it tonight and to hear from it preached. So I ask that you would uh, give me much of the Holy Spirit in a way that is outside of myself and allows me to preach uh, Lord, to write to the hearts of, of my brothers and sisters and into my own heart that we would receive this word tonight and be changed by it for life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles tonight to First Peter chapter 2. And if you have a pew Bible, that's on page 1014, 1014. First Peter chapter 2. And I want to read together uh, verses 1 through 3. It's also going to be on the screen as well. First Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore... Having put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, crave like newborn babies the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up unto salvation, since you have tasted for yourselves that the Lord is good." There's a uh, social phenomenon that's taking place uh, in the United States, and perhaps you've seen it. Um, it's where there's an increasing number of youth, uh, young people in the U.S., um, who are unwilling to grow up, take on adult responsibility, marry, start raising families. And even Time Magazine, this is so prevalent that even Time Magazine has uh, recently published um, – an article on the existence of this trend. In fact, in one issue of Time magazine, they did a cover story on this social trend labeling these young people who are refusing to grow up as twixters. I think it means between two stages. They're betwixt two stages. Twixters, young adults who simply won't grow up. It's, it's perplexing because the fact is they're not kids anymore, but the reality is they're not adults either. They often live with their parents, even after college. Um, they hop from job to job, relationship to relationship. Um, generally, they lack direction, commitment. They have no financial independence. Uh, they don't take much personal responsibility. And somehow, in a strange way, they manage to spend more money, more time, 
than the average American on clothes, movies, music, and video games and eating out. Well, last week, um, I ran into one of these Twixters. He's, uh, he's in his late 20s, and um, he's always at Starbucks. I mean, really, he's kind of eerie. Actually, no matter what time I go, no matter what time of the day, no matter what hour, no matter what day of the week, he's there. And uh, usually he's out on the patio, and uh, he, he has an iced coffee. Um, he uh, sits with his friends, and they, they kind of loiter on the patio. Well, anyway, I've talked to him a number of times because I'm just curious, what's, what's the deal with this guy? What's the deal with him? He's there all the time. What's, what's going on with his life? And I wanted to find out because my, my goal is I want to give him new incentive. I want to give him gospel incentive for life. Anyway, I ran into him last week, and our, our exchange went something like this. I said, uh, hey, man, how you doing? And he looked at me, and he said, uh, oh, fine, man, just keeping it real. <laughs> okay, all right. So uh, I said, uh, you working anywhere? Nah, nah, just, just keeping it real, man. Okay, all right. So uh, um, any, uh, any plans going forward? Any, uh, what, you, what are you going to do? What's, what's next for you? He looks at me and he says, well, I mean, I'm, I'm living with my parents, and that's a pretty sweet deal. I said, so any plans? He said, uh, well, um, I'm going to buy an accordion. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. He said, I'm going to buy an accordion. He said, I want to play it. And then he said, well, anyway, man, he's like, I got to go. And he went back out to the patio. And I sat there, and I scratched my Are you serious? Did, did I just have that conversation with this guy? <laughs> no, no, no job, no desire to get a job. And according to Time Magazine, he's a twixter. But according to the Bible, he's a boy who's refusing to become a man. Today, the historical transition from boyhood to manhood, uh, it's just not happening. You know, uh, the pattern is supposed to be like this. You leave your parents' home, you finish your education, you get a job, not a dead-end Joe job. You get a real job. You, you meet a woman, you love her, you honor her, you court her, you marry her, and then you have children with her. And we're losing that with our young people. Instead, our society has created something that we can call extended adolescence. Um, it's a third stage between adulthood and between childhood and adulthood, and it's hard to know exactly what to call it. So, the authors of uh, the, the Revolution, uh, Brett and Eric Harris, have called this the Peter Pan syndrome. The only difference is these Peter Pans at Starbucks carry around with them a razor, and they can shave. They're boys who can shave. The Apostle Paul says, when I was a boy, I talked like a boy, I thought like a boy, I reasoned like a boy. When I became a man, I put away childish and boyish ways behind me. Sadly, a lot of young people don't. Now, if that process is true in the physical realm, then it's certainly true spiritually speaking. Sadly, we live in an, in an evangelical culture prone to what we can call the, the spiritual Peter Pan syndrome. This is extended spiritual adolescence. Uh, and that's why we see the apostles that, who speak to um, the, their, their children in the faith with words like this. John says, it's, great, it's a great delight to see my children walking in the truth. 
And Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, it's that he's glad to see him going on to maturity and that his faith has blossomed unto usefulness. And likewise, Peter also speaks in this text to the issue of growth and, and maturity. He says, like newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up unto salvation. You see, Peter's concern is, is that we continue to grow. It, it, Peter's concern is that we not live in spiritual adolescence. Friends, how do you get past spiritual mediocrity? You know, you've been a Christian for years, and yet you're, you're so conscious of the fact that you've not grown like you should have. Lukewarmness, immaturity, dullness of hearing, the cares and the concerns of this life have taken over, apathy, lethargy, mediocrity. Surely you would agree with me that really the problem is not the Bible. The problem is not even the church, but the problem is the heart. It's the soul. It's anemic. It's, well, it's, it's unwell. I wonder, are, are you unwell this evening, spiritually speaking? If so, my prayer is that you will be changed by this word tonight. We must fight, friends. We must fight against the encroachments to apathy and boredom and laziness and indifference. We must go to the Lord. We must go and let the Lord of glory speak life and energy and hope and zeal and passion and earnestness into our spirit. The thing is, if you're a Christian, I, I, I know your story because it's my story. It's all of our story. You see, Peter's whole emphasis in this passage is on growth. And, and really, his argument works backwards. Look at verse 3. Peter says, verse 3, since you have tasted for yourselves that the Lord is good. See, verse 3 is that initial taste that we had of God. It's our conversion. It's our regeneration. It's when all of a sudden everything becomes new for us. Verse 1, then, is, verse one is a description of our ongoing struggle with sin after conversion. And then verse 2 is a prescription of how we are to continue growing. So what I want to do tonight is I want to retrace that story uh, using this outline. I want to look at verse 3. Verse 3 is the taste, the taste that starts our growth. Then we're going to look at verse 1, the sin that stunts our growth, and conclude with verse 2, the food that sustains our growth. So first, the, the taste that starts our growth, verse 3. Peter says this, since you have tasted for yourselves that the Lord is good. Now, what Peter's doing here is he is affirming a reality. Peter is saying, you have already tasted. Verse 3 serves as an incentive to verse 2. In other words, Peter is saying, you should be all the more willing to fulfill verse 2 because you have tasted that the Lord is good. And what he does is he quotes, really, this is a quotation from Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, which says, David says this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. In this psalm, what David is doing is David is referring to Yahweh, Jehovah. He's saying that Jehovah is good. 
And here, Peter uses the exact words of Psalm 34, 8, and he applies them to Jesus Christ, which in effect is to say that all the characteristics and attributes and the nature of Yahweh belong to Jesus Christ. What he's saying is, he is saying that he's identifying Jesus as the one who saves us from the wrath of God. Because in Psalm 34, 8, what does David say? David says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So when he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, he's importing the context of Psalm 34, 8, and he's getting at the point that those who also find their refuge in Jesus are saved from the wrath of God. The Lord is good. And Peter's emphasis here is on the fact that we have tasted. Now, this tasting is a very personal taste. The form of the Greek verb here makes this explicitly clear. Peter is saying, you have tasted for yourselves. And really, this idea of tasting that the Lord is good is simply a summary of what he's already been describing in all of chapter 1. So in chapter 1, verse 3, what does Peter say? He says, according to his great mercy, he saved us. According to his great mercy, he caused us, excuse me, to be born again. By the way, I love that language. He caused us to be born again. Isn't that amazing language? Think about that. He caused us to be born again, which means regeneration is, this is where God gives you a new heart. He gives you a new mind, new desires, new identity, new Lord, new community, new eternity. And it's a gift and it's something God does. You have about as much participation in your new birth as you did in your first birth. You did not birth yourself. And, and this just in, if you think you did, you can ask, I'll ask your mother and she'll identify and tell you that you did not. <laughs> you did not birth yourself. And, and what this is saying is that God caused you to be born again. That is fantastic language. Now, this is what it means to taste that the Lord is good. It means to be those who have received new life from God. In verse 9 of chapter 1, look at verse 9, chapter 1. He says, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now look at verse 23, the same chapter. It says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the, through the living and abiding word of God. What does it mean to taste that the Lord is good? Well, it means you've experienced regeneration through the living word of God. It's tasting the goodness of the Lord. You know, it's more than just believing that Jesus saves. It's actually perceiving his worth, appreciating his sweetness, and enjoying the loveliness of the Lord himself. You see, a man who's tasted the Lord's goodness is a man who has more than just a rational notion of who God is. It's a man who has a personal sense of the goodness of God. Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. Actually, the full title is A Divine and Supernatural Light Immediately Imparted to the Soul of Man by the Spirit of God. Both a biblical and rational doctrine. <laughs> These long Puritan titles. An unbelievable sermon. He, this is what he said. Listen, he says, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. A man may have an idea that it is sweet without actually tasting its sweetness. 
Well, if you're a believer tonight, you've actually tasted that the Lord is sweet. This is your testimony. When you first tasted the Lord, you realized through the eyes of faith that he was good. You considered him to be all-satisfying, the, the, the fountain of endless delight and pleasure. You experienced for the first time peace with God and, and a clean conscience. And you knew what it meant to be forgiven. I mean, thoughts concerning the grace, the mercy, and the love of God so consumed your mind. Your eyes were open to these realities. And, and you know what? Words, words simply could not express the overflow of emotion in your heart. I mean, think about it, the joy and the ecstasy of it all. In fact, you had moments where you were almost too happy to live. Did did you hear what I said? Have you ever felt almost too happy to live? (laughs) I have. You know what it is? That's That's when you are so taken up by God And his love for you is so overpowering that you almost have to ask God to stop the delight. I've had moments, very few, but powerful moments in time alone with the Lord where you feel God's presence so powerfully that you almost feel like you have to ask God to stop because it is overpowering. Oh, friends, if we would have more of those. What what is it that about us that's causing us not to have that? But praise God, dear friends, that this is your story. Isn't this true? Am I speaking lies this evening? Is not this the truth of the word of God? Haven't you tasted for yourselves that the Lord is good? And if you've tasted, if you've tasted that he's good, wouldn't you say tonight that he he is good now? Isn't he good to you now? Then praise God. Praise God tonight. Well, that's our initial taste of God. It was the taste that started our growth. It was a taste that transformed us. How about you? Are you growing these days as a Christian? Are you growing these days? Or are you kind of the same today that you were two or three years ago? Well, how how do Christians grow? Presumably, if they grow, then they grow all over. They grow in every facet of their life. Now, listen. What, what goes into the mind is to be affected, is to, is to meet re- realization in our life. That is, what you, we entertain with our minds should find its way to the hand. It should produce action. It should, it should create a behavioral change in us. We implement what we learn. But what happens if we stuff our head full of knowledge all the time, and then we do little or nothing about it? <laughs> Can you imagine a child's head? getting bigger and bigger and bigger and his body staying the same? I mean, the, the very idea of that is, is it's, it's like a, it would be like a monster. It would be like an animal. The child would be strange. And yet we come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and the question is, do we just feed? Do we just feed and feed and feed Or is the word that we're receiving actually changing us? Are we growing? Are we becoming new people? So we need to practice what we preach. And also our appetite for the Lord needs to be developed if we're going to grow. And part of that development process involves putting off old habits. And so Peter gives us a list of sins that marked our former life. Look at verse 1. Peter calls us to resist them. Uh, And and. 
who, who in here would not admit that these things have a tendency to creep back in? Isn't that true? Uh, and, and if we get a hold, and what Peter's saying is, if we do not get a hold of these vices in verse 1, we'll continue to be spiritual dwarves and we'll never move past those initial feet of growth, spiritually speaking. So in the second place, Peter reminds us of the sin that stunts our growth. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. The presence of these vices uh, serves to stunt our growth in Christ. Uh, Peter reminds us that though we have put away the power of these vices, the presence of these vices still remain. These sins are deadly. Uh, We could call this the filthy five of human relationships. They've hurt you. You've been hurt by these sins. You have hurt others by these sins. Here's Here's the first one, malice. Malice. Malice is the desire to cause pain. It's like, it's like I'm going to get you for what you've for what you've done to me. It's 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 kind of a I'm going to make you pay for that. Kind of an attitude. It's hatred for your brother. And Peter's like, look, put that away. That is not going anywhere good. Put this away. And then there's deceit. Uh, anyone fish? Anyone like to fish? Deceit is deceit is we can think about fishing here um it's the whole concept of a bait what do you do with a bait you take something that's really appealing and and you you put it onto a hook right in fishing and you're hiding the hook and so the fish thinks it's going to get something good and and tasty and when it goes to consume this bait it gets hooked and it's actually destructive for the fish and and we do this all the time in relationships this is the same thing that happens. That's, that's where you promise one thing and you give something else. And, and nothing breaks down a relationship more than deceit. Think about a marriage. Uh, a wife comes into marriage and she thinks her husband's going to serve her in certain ways that he's promised to serve her. But he doesn't. And you know what it does? It creates a climate of bitterness. And maybe... It helps for us here to think about the opposite virtue. What's the opposite of deceit? It's honesty. Honesty, sincerity. So Peter says, put away malice, put away deceit. Here's the third thing, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is, is like playing the, the role of an actor. It's like you're something, acting like you're something that you're not. It's saying one thing and doing another. It's having both a private life and a public life when God sees all of life. He sees it all. But it's, it's having that double, that double life. The opposite of hypocrisy is transparency. Transparency. It's, someone once said, I don't know who said it, but that transparency is the disclosure, is, is the currency, excuse me, of human relationships. Disclosure is the currency of human relationships. We, we, we survive on that. We have to be real with each other. So, so let me speak into your life this evening. How transparent are you in your relationships? When's the last time you confess sin to a brother or a sister? Or do you find yourself having to kind of fake it a lot? One Puritan said, religion that begins in hypocrisy will certainly end in apostasy. That's a challenging thought. Then there's envy. Envy is the inability to rejoice with someone else when, they've, when they have something you don't. Man, she's so lucky. Look at her perfect, perfect little life, her nice little house. Why does she get to be up there? And why didn't I get the promotion and, and the money and the stuff? And why didn't I get that? And 
Envy is that big green monster. You know, it's that parasite that just eats and eats and eats at a relationship at a relationship until it absolutely just strips it of nothing. People of God, we we must not envy our friends who have greater gifts. Listen, if we have any gifts at all, that's more than we deserve. So let us look at what we already have and give thanks to God. Now, if all those things are in the heart of a man, think about it, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, then the last one's certainly going to be there, slander. Because slander is speaking against someone. It's to cut down. It's the desire to enhance yourself by making somebody else look worse. Boy, I mean, who in, who in here has not done that? And, you know, it's like, have you, have you seen her? Have you seen, the, have you seen the clothes she wears? You know, she's always shopping. And, and then she comes to the Bible study, like, you know, like she even cares about that. You know, you cut her down. I mean, how destructive is that type of behavior? And Peter's like, listen, you have, you have put that away. Don't bring this back. This is something you have put away. Leave it away. And that's just on an individual level. But let me talk about the church. What happens when you bring these vices into the church? Friends, they tear at the very social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep us together. And as a community of believers, we are to tolerate no sin. It doesn't mean that we don't love each other. It doesn't mean that we don't forgive or show grace. But what it does mean is this, is that all sin is to be rejected comprehensively. These are, these are the sins of the evangelical church. Somehow we've got this notion that, well, just a little bit of deceit, a little bit of hypocrisy, a little bit of malice. You know, we're, we're, we're still sinners. We're still prone to that, so we'll let that slide. And we don't want to confront one another on those sins. They are destructive. They will kill us. Not only will they kill your soul, but they can kill the very life of the church and breed contempt in the church and split the church right down the middle. How can we allow that? Love each other enough to say no. We cannot allow these sins. So we've seen the the taste that starts our growth and the sin that stunts our growth. And we come finally to the food that sustains our growth. And this really is the emphasis of the chapter. 1 Peter 2.2 As newborn babies crave the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up unto salvation. What is this milk that Peter refers to? What's he, what does he have in mind here? Look, look at the Bible in your lap. Uh, depending on the translation that you have, it will either read like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, or it'll read like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Both translations are fine. The thing is, some translations use the phrase milk of the word to clarify the fact that the milk Peter is referring to is the word of God, which was his whole emphasis in chapter 1. That's the whole point. But when Peter uses the expression milk of the word, he has in mind here not only the word of God itself, but the gospel in specific. Let me show you that. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. 24 of chapter 1. What does Peter say? He's talking about the word of God, and he says this. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. 
And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, so when Peter says crave the pure milk of the word, he's urging us not only to crave the word of God in general, but to crave the message of the gospel in specific. I love that. After all, it was the gospel, it was through the gospel that we originally tasted the kindness of the Lord. And friends, it's through the gospel that we'll continue to taste the kindness of the Lord. Do you need a fresh reminder of God's kindness? Go back to the gospel. People of God, we never advance beyond the good news of the cross and the empty tomb. As Christians, uh, we always look back to the gospel, and we never look to the law as the basis for our righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. There's no such thing as a performance-based Christianity. Justification is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from start to finish. It is everything for us. It's a doctrine for each and every moment. So let me ask you tonight, have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you put your confidence in him? I urge you tonight to to stop trying, to stop trying to be a good person. That won't get you anywhere. And rely on the only one who is only good, who has only been good his entire existence is Jesus. Trust in him. So we are to crave the milk of the word. Now, let me say this. The the point of comparison here uh, between us and infants is not our level of maturity. See, the problem is people think, well, since 1 Corinthians uh, talks about the milk and since Hebrews 5 talks about milk, therefore, what Peter's doing is he's saying these are immature Christians who need milk. If that's the direction you're going with this text, then you've not understood it. Because the point of comparison in 1 Peter 2 is not between us and infants like we're, we're immature and we need to grow up. The, the point in, in 1 Peter 2 is that point of comparison is that we are to crave God's word like infants crave milk. It's not so much of an, of an emphasis on the fact that we are immature, although we, we certainly are. The point is how we are to crave. It's, it's craving is the issue here. Matthew Henry says this, listen, infants desire milk and their desire for it are fervent. Their desires for it are fervent and frequent and they arise from an impatient sense of hunger and will do anything they can to obtain it. What mother in here would say that's not true? Or father who's at home waiting for his wife to come back, (laughs) babysitting. But let me ask you this, does that sound like you? How would you characterize your appetite for God's word? The fact is, when a person is sick, he often loses his taste. Even the most delicious food becomes nauseous. But you know what? Let me encourage you. The Lord is good. Let the flavor of his kindness be a refreshment to you tonight. To nourish you out of your spiritual sickness. You know, it's a strange thing, but somewhere along the way, um, a spirit of apathy can set in in a Christian life. Dare I even say boredom? You remember those days when you were a new Christian? How excited you were? How thrilled you were to read and study the Bible? I mean, in a lot of ways, it was, it was like, have you ever received a love letter? What, what do you do when you receive a love letter? 
That's very personal and powerful. If you've ever received one, you'll know what I mean. You 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 take the letter and 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 all you want to do is be alone with it. You, you want to get alone with that letter. You, you want to get alone with it and you want to read it over and over and you want to think about every line. And if in the letter somebody asks you for something, your loved one asks you for a request or a favor, then you want to fulfill that request immediately. There's not a second to waste. You want to please the one that you love. And this is how it used to be for you with God's word. You were eager to read it. You wanted to be alone with it, alone with God's word. And, and once you understood what it was asking of you, you, you rushed off immediately to do what it said. Oh, dear friend, what happened? What, what, what happened? Are, are you afraid to be alone with God's word now? Is, is it too convicting? Is it too demanding to be alone with Scripture? You know, it's almost that when you open it, you're reading it. It's almost as if God were standing over your shoulder and in a very loving and fatherly way, whispers in your ear, Son, daughter, have you done what it asked of you there? And you feel the weight of it because for years now you've been slacking and, and, and you've become disinterested. And the, and the fact is you're no longer eager to do what it says or, or perhaps you're afraid to read the word because if you read it and understand it, you will feel compelled to do it. And it's just too radical. It's just too demanding. It's asking too much of you. And so you, you, you leave it on the shelf, and so you've learned how to make an excuse, haven't you? You've learned how to say, well, you know, I, I'm happy to do what it's asking me to do, but the fact is I'm not really sure I understand the correct interpretation. I'll have to study that a little bit more to make sure that I understand what it's really asking me to do before I go out and do it. Friend, is it a commentary or a dictionary that you need? Or is it obedience? Look, I know there are confusing parts in the Bible, and we can study those. But for now, friends, let's do what we know we are to do from the Word of God. Well, you say to me, you say, well, Pastor Jonathan, I'm not getting much out of the Bible. I, I read it. I don't get much out of it. Well, that may be true. But realize this. That says a lot more about you than it says about the Bible. Friend, if you desire to be a growing, healthy Christian, you cannot treat the Bible as snack food. The Bible is meant to be a ration for your soul. It's meant to be a storehouse of hope for your life. It's meant to be medicine for your heart. It's meant to be a shield for your defense, a lamp for your feet, a sword for your battle, and a mirror for your deceptive heart. And milk for your growth. Others of you perhaps have a different problem. You see God's word as more of an object uh, for mere scrutiny. You want to analyze the text. You want to do inductive Bible study. Tuesday night Bible study. Thursday night Bible study. Friday morning Bible study. Saturday morning coffee Bible study. 
You got a Panera Bible study. You got a Starbucks Bible study. You got it. And you're always reading over the manual over and over and over. And that's good. But we need to run some plays. We need to implement the manual. This is the thing is that is, is that we can have almost a tendency to just be in Bible study mode so much that we read. But understand, friends, that there's a difference between reading and reading with a dictionary. If you're reading with a dictionary, you may not be reading the Word of God. You may be studying the Word of God, but you may not be reading it. Don't Don't hear me wrong now because reading and studying, doing inductive Bible study is good discipline. But it may not be reading. I, application here for our seminary students. If you're a Midwest Center student, if you are studying theology, if you are engaged in intense Bible study, studying systematic theology, if you're doing that, then realize that there is a tendency to get consumed with analytical thinking and Bible study mode all the time. And, and, and a man can always be defending the truth and trying to understand the truth. But there comes a time when you just have to feed on the truth. You just have to read and, and, and receive the word of God and the nourishment that comes from it. Friends, we need nourishment. Uh, when I was growing up, I can remember going on a lot of road trips uh, with my family. And one of the things that we did when we went on these road trips is dad would always take out the atlas. And he would sit down at the table and he would analyze the atlas and look through uh, the routes, several different routes. He would calculate, he would analyze which route is the best. And, and he would determine the number of miles we would drive, and he would determine where we're going to stop and where we're going to spend the night and perhaps where we're going to eat and where's a big exit and all that stuff. It was calculated. It was math. It was – we would work on that. And and if we ran into a detour or some kind of a jam on the road, then he would throw the atlas to me, and I'd be sitting in the van getting car sick and trying to figure out where to take a detour so we can avoid this traffic jam. But here's the thing. Here's the point is that the atlas was our constant companion. I mean, we, we would consult it many times during a single day. We couldn't get along without it. And, and he, let me ask you this question. What's your constant companion? What, what is it that you can't do without? Is there anything that's spoiling your appetite for God's word? Moms forever tell their children... Honey, you can't have that snack right now because that's going to spoil your appetite. Friends, if you're full of other things, you will not hunger for God's word. Solomon says, the one whose appetite is satisfied despises honey. But the hungry mouth, even bitter things are sweet to him. How do you know when you're full of this world? I think one way to measure it is is to to consider what is it that you habitually talk about? What consumes your mind and attention? On the other hand, how, how, how does a person know when they are full of the word of God? Spurgeon says, the one who eats into the very soul of the Bible will talk in scriptural language and his spirit will be flavored with the words of the Lord so that his blood is bibline and the very essence of the Bible flows from him. Man, love, I want to be that man. Do you love the word? 
Test yourself. Here are the evidences. Do I love the word? If you love the word, you will diligently read it. You will frequently meditate on it. You will delight in it. You will memorize it. You will prioritize it. You will talk about it, and you will be transformed by it. You will be willing to defend it even to the point of death, and you will be anxious to hear it preached as if it were really a matter of life and death. There's a certain uh, Puritan preacher named uh, Lawrence Chatterton, and he once apologized to his congregation for preaching two hours. (laughs) Anybody ever heard a two-hour sermon? You know what they said? Uh, Imagine the situation. Please forgive me. I've preached for two hours. You know what they said? For God's sake, sir, go on, go on. Those people understood. For God's sake, sir, go on. And at 82 years of age, after preaching for 50 years, Chatterton decided to retire. And he received letters from 40 members of his church begging him not to, testifying that they owed their very conversion to that man of God. What's your relationship like with the word? I'll close with this. Thomas Goodwin tells of a Puritan preacher in 1620s. Uh, His name was John Rogers. John Rogers uh, was in the middle of a sermon. He was preaching, and he admonished uh, 500 people, was powerfully preaching. It was one of those kind of sermons where the whole time it just felt, this guy's coming after us. And, And he preached... And, and he was admonishing 500 hearers, and he was admonishing them for neglecting the Bible. And what he did was, first he impersonated God to them, and he said, he says, uh, he, he says, this is what God says to you. He says, I have trusted, I have, I have trusted you for so many years now with my word, with my Bible, and there it lies in such and such houses, having dust. All over it, covered with cobwebs, and you care not to listen to it. Is this how important? Is this how important my word is to you? And he imitates God, and he says, "Well, then you shall have it no longer." And James Rogers took the Bible, and he started to walk off with the Bible as if he were going to leave the sanctuary. And then he zipped around, and he played the role of the church member. And he fell on his knees. And he said, Lord, whatever you do to us, take not your Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods, only spare us the Bible. Don't take away your Bible. Then he impersonated God again to the people. And God said, is that so? Then I will try you a little longer. Here's my Bible for you. I will see how you use it. Whether you love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. At that point, according to Thomas Goodwin, the entire congregation 
broke into tears. <laughs> Goodwin himself, when he got outside, he hung on the neck of his horse and he wept for a half hour before he had the strength to mount on his horse. So powerful an impression this laid upon him. And I ask you tonight, people of God, what will you do with God's word? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, the only thing that comes to my mind now is confession. We've sinned. We have sinned against you, God. How foolish are we? We have all that we need, the life of the word. It's in our hands. God, we have dishonored you. It's your word. Help us to treat it like it's your word. And help us to love it. And like newborn babies, crave the milk of the word that, that we may grow up unto salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.